Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we bring you a holiday special on climate, which poses the greatest threat to humanity. We will have two segments, the first on the recently completed COP27 climate gathering in Egypt of the world's government. And then we'll hear about climate advocacy in New York with Santosh Nandabalan of Food and Water Watch. In breaking news, Governor Hochul on Tuesday signed a bill to impose a two-year moratorium on new proof-of-work cryptocurrency mining operation. Cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin have people solve a complicated mathematical puzzle in order to create and win the cryptocurrency, which may be worth tens of thousands of dollars. Companies employ thousands of computers in order to win. The computers require a tremendous amount of electricity, which results in much more fossil fuels being burnt. The recently concluded COP27 climate gathering in Egypt for the first time agreed to the concept that industrialized countries should pay for loss and damages to developing nations in the global south as the principal victims of climate change. But as usual, the details of national funding remain to be determined. World leaders, however, once again failed to agree to the emission cuts needed to prevent excessive global warming. Many of the world's leading climate scientists and advocates, including the Secretary General of the United Nations, believe that the world has run out of time to prevent climate chaos. Frank Sheridan of the Global Greens was in Egypt and provides an overview of the event. We're joined for this show, a special on climate, with uh, Frank Sheridan, who is the Executive Secretary of the uh, Global Greens. And the Global Greens and Frank were... Uh, participants at the recent COP27 conference of parties that gathered in Egypt to help the world make decisions about climate, partly as a follow-up, you know, to the Paris Climate Accords. Um, so when we start, Frank, do you want to give people a quick introduction? What's what's the Global Greens? Thanks very much, Mark, and uh, thanks very much for having us on your station. And hello to America. It's a pleasure to be uh, speaking with you. And uh, yeah, hope you've been enjoying what Mark's got on offer. And I'm excited to be part of the program today. The Global Greens, I'll start with that. Um, you may or may not know that around the world, most countries have a Green Party in it. And the Global Greens is the international connection of those Green Parties. Um, the, the organization is um, uh, the federations of, sorry, excuse me, there's four federations around the world. Uh, the Americas, where your home turf is, uh, Europe, where I'm talking to you from in Italy, although originally I'm from the UK, uh, Africa and Asia Pacific. And I manage the interconnection uh, of, the, um, of the Green parties, looking at capacity building, resource sharing, making sure we get good green uh, people in positions of power. Um, and we're basically building up the green movement. Now, Europe COP27, and I did see a summary you put down um, about the event. Certainly, many people are focusing on the fact that while there are not many details, there was agreement finally that the you know global north will be responsible for some loss and damages uh, to pay for the global south, um, but generally not as much optimism that uh, they really crack down on the fossil fuel plants and, and emissions uh, as much as they should have. So, you know, what is your basic impression, you know, coming away from, from, from COP? 
Well, you know, it's always a mixed bag. Let's be clear. Uh, you know, there's many of us, Mark, and I think you included, and many of our listeners out there who've been talking and interested in this for a long, long time. Uh, and, you know, if we'd have been addressing this properly, we wouldn't be in this situation now. Uh, and ultimately, we, we've got some very positive news in many senses. Uh, we campaigned heavily on loss and damage. Um, but there's other key things which are missing from uh, the agreement, really, and are just not being addressed properly. Um, let's just take a little rewind and remind ourselves of the science, uh, which is from the IPCC and the UN. Uh, and let's be honest, this isn't uh, this is sort of mainstream science now. This isn't sort of you know out there as it used to be kind of accused of. But we know we need emissions to peak um, very soon, and we need a 45% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 to keep to 1.5. That is a fact. Um, there's actually more to it, really, depending on how you want to scrutinize it. But in order to keep to a 1.5 world, that is what we need to have. That's what our goal is. And the failing, I guess, of this COP is that it's not been addressed properly. And that is not looking, that's looking basically at the fact we're not looking at the cause of the problems, which is fossil fuel emissions. In fact, in the past year, a, a recent report suggested, well, demonstrated that they've actually increased, uh, particularly after COVID as well, which is disappointing. Um, they need to be peaking, they need to be going down. Loss and damage is the effect of climate change. If fossil fuels are the cause, loss and damage is the effect. So what's interesting about the, the agreement, and, and there's more nuance to it, um, is that, yes, we have finally got the developed world, the global north, to agree. Um, we worked quite hard with Europe uh, on that, and I'd like to talk a bit more about that later. And the US as well came on board. So that is a big positivity. Uh, we know climate justice is at the heart of what we do. The people who are impacted the most by climate change have bear the least responsibility for it. It's a historic omissions which my continent and your country are responsible for. And that's what made us generally wealthy, although I'm sure there's problems within that too. I know there is in mine and elsewhere too. But this is what has given us a standing in the world. So addressing loss and damage is fantastic. It's not perfect. Um, they've had to do a lot of um, uh, sort of consensus building and sort of clever negotiations to get people to sign it. And there's more to come. But it is a plus. But ultimately, what isn't on there is a proper acknowledgement of what the cause of the problem is, and that is fossil fuel emissions. Now, one of the controversial elements of this particular COP was it was held in Egypt, where they have a very poor track record on, on, on human rights. Uh, I, I believe the Egyptian uh, Green Party actually have some members in the, uh, the Senate of, of Egypt uh, formally boycotted the, the event. What what was the um, you know sort of scene like? I understand maybe many as thirty thousand people, many of them were uh, apparently fossil fuel uh, lobbyists. Yeah, I mean to be honest, um, I'm going to shout it out now. Uh, there was a weak host country who I think really ultimately were out for the prize of hosting a COP, um, and some some aspects of what wasn't addressed during the negotiations and the role of the host country uh, highlighted that weakness. But I'd just like to return to what you're saying about the Egyptian Green Party. I'd like to give a shout out to a very dear friend of mine, Mohammed Awad, who is the leader of the Egyptian Green Party. Um, I work very closely with him and uh, their decision to boycott was something that we worked upon together. Um, we did discuss whether we should boycott too. Uh, let, let's be clear, there's over 60,000 political prisoners um, languishing in jail with no recourse, no legal aspect, not, not knowing anything um, since al-Sisi came to power. Um, and that is atrocious. I think, you know, looking at the UNFCCC, you need to look very hard about the countries that host it and what's expected of them. 
Uh, we can talk a bit more about that later as well. I even reflect upon my own country and being uh, more honest about its colonial history uh, and the, the damage that's done and the wealth that's given us today. But, you know, the, the Egyptians, in a sense, were... It was okay. It was one of the second... I think it's the second most attended COP ever, so it's a big deal. Um, and looking at the number of gas deals that have been struck uh, there is very questionable, given the Ukraine invasion uh, and the appalling behaviour of Putin on the world stage and, and the regional stage there. Um, that, that's been exploited. And I think Egypt particularly did not put strong language uh, about fossil fuel reduction on the paper. I mean, that should be their job to be putting hard language on there for negotiators to knock off or, or to work with. And it was just never there. Other countries had to put it on. So the fact this is billed as the African COP and Egyptians, the Egyptian government taking a lead on that kind of indicates where they're coming from really with that. You know, they were all about making some deals. There's the biggest number of fossil fuel lobbyists there as well. They are given passes and aspect, uh, access excuse me, uh, by the Egyptian government into the negotiators, which people like us just did not have. Frankly, that stinks. Um, and the outcome of it, um, what's good about the agreement and what's no good about it, speak to that really and it's quite weak on their part too yeah you mentioned that the uh, you know egypt as the host country really did not do a very good job of putting the issue of uh, cutting emissions on the table and, and I, I did see reports that the, uh, the the person who was basically the formal host um for the glasgow um cop 27 26 last year was, was quite uh, vocal that in fact um, he, he thought there was a good chance that we really were losing any ability to keep global warming below 1.5 uh, degrees but you also mentioned this was the african uh, cop and you know one of the things is i was doing some research about the issue of loss and damages which i had not really fully grasped previously is how many of the most vulnerable countries on the planet um, to climate um, and experience extreme weather already, uh, you know, is from Africa. And then you also mentioned the issue of the legacy of colonialism. And of course, Africa is one of the, perhaps the continent with the most uh, disturbing legacy about um, colonialism. So, so how did the African countries feel about the outcome? Probably, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, 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 again, it's a mixed bag, really. Um, again, uh, my movement and my delegation, well, our delegation, um, it was very well represented through Africa. Um, probably people out there who are listening have noticed that perhaps compared to COP26 in Glasgow last year, last year um, uh, you might have heard a bit less about it this year. Um, but in Africa, it was very, very different. Uh, and there's been a lot of momentum, a lot of energy about it. Um, so again, the outcome is kind of a mixed bag, really. They have loss and damage on the agenda, and that's something they fought really, really hard to have on there. Um, there are issues with uh, what's going to happen next, because they have a formal agreement. Really, the crux of the issue was that it wasn't just the Global North responsibility and Europe and the US and other major economies uh, signing up to it, which they did very quickly, actually. Um, it's actually the mechanism behind the loss and damage facility is built upon the 1992 language of the UNFCCC, and that is the definition of what a developed and a developing country is. But that, that's quite a long time ago now, that's 30 years. So countries such as China, Saudi Arabia, South Korea are very, very different countries to what they were 30 years ago. So they were kind of, uh, not South Korea, but Saudi Arabia and uh, China in particular, 
were very, very reticent to be wanting to be fun funding this loss and damage fund. The global north, the developed countries feel feeling well, particularly China, is by far the biggest emitter. And uh, they've had a per capita increase of you know 30 times compared to 1992. Saudi Arabia is a massive petro oil state. So part of the crooks actually came down to those countries there as well. And just to give our listeners at home a bit of context, um, the negotiations don't just happen country to country, they happen within negotiating blocks. Uh, where I'm talking from in Europe, we're a negotiating block. Um, but the Global South is not largely organized into what's called the G77 plus China. <laughs> I think the plus China tells you quite a bit about the issues there as well. Um, and it's the sort of like um, strategic sort of negotiating games that get played, really. Um, the Chinese sometimes move away and kind of go on their own. And, and really, they're, they're on a par with America and Europe with the amount of emissions that there are and the responsibility for it increasingly. Uh, however, they like to be seen as and negotiate as a G77, as a global South country. Um, and because China has been very, very strong at investing in many places in Africa, um, they have a lot of friends, and a lot of favorites, particularly in the governments there, whereas people might think a little bit differently. So sometimes uh, when the EU announced they were going to go for loss and damage, uh, that was actually perceived a little bit negatively, surprisingly, by the global South or some countries, because it was perceived as driving a wedge between the G77 and China. That wasn't the perspective at all from one of the Irish Greens is actually a negotiator. Uh, so we had a bit of insight and that really wasn't the way they were coming from. But this is how it's perceived as well. So it's quite a complicated thing. Um, coming back to your question, what does Africa think about it? I mean, I will not speak for Africa, <laughs> to be honest, as a, a white European man. But the people I work with are happy there's a loss and damage facility. There's a lot of work to do to make it happen. Um, some of the initial language was meaning that, for example, that Pakistan, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if our viewers or listeners at home know about this, but has had devastating floods uh, over the past few months. You know, 70% of the country underwater, livelihoods, livestock, buildings, roads, schools, hospitals, people displaced, boom, it's been massive. Um, that country initially, uh, and the, the, one of the early drafts of loss and damage, wouldn't have actually qualified funding from it or in the early drafts of it but that's got put to one side now and what's happened is a, a committee is going to be put forward uh, and they have to work upon which countries actually qualify as vulnerable and the aspects of that too and just talking about Pakistan as well we worked very hard with the Pakistan Greens there's a couple of parties there um, and actually the example of Pakistan is really what kept loss and damage really high on the agenda and really what helped us bring it home and get a result on it um, we had key speakers uh, getting into the plenaries. We had key speakers speaking to the negotiators. We were talking for the media. We were platforming. I say we, not just the Global Greens, the broad um, umbrella of our movement. And that was a really, really fantastic example because the science has radically changed in the past few years. And they can demonstrate that that flooding is 80% more likely because of climate change. We can actually say now these big events are because of climate change. And five years ago, we couldn't say that. So we've been able to use the science in order to develop proper policy and to create pressure on the negotiators to have better outcomes. And the example of Pakistan is devastating. And my heart goes out to those poor people who, many of them still homeless, sitting by the roadside, unable to go to school, go to hospital, waterborne diseases, there's a tremendous amount of difficulty there. But that example enables to show climate change is here. It's happening all around us. I'm sure you've all felt it in the US. We certainly have here in Europe. I'm based in Italy. We have our, our 40 degree July temperatures started in May uh, and they only just stopped a couple of weeks ago. It's crazy. But exa the examples like that and the devastation it's causing 
really helped to bring that home. And that's a powerful thing. And that's something that Africa really responds to because they've been seeing this and feeling this for much longer than we have for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And they've been crying and banging drums about it for so long. So it's a big positive in that respect. How it gets funded, who funds it, who receives from it, and how is the next complication. We're talking with uh, Frank Sheridan, uh, Executive Secretary of the Global Greens. Uh, this is Mark Dunley on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You had mentioned earlier the, the need to cut emissions by at least 45% um, by, by 2030. W- one thing I'll point out, I mean, those are the numbers that come from the IPCC, but they actually don't believe that that is sufficient to actually, you know, keep below 1.5 degrees centigrade um, in order to do that. In addition to 45% cuts, uh, they have been really calling very heavily for uh, carbon capture and particularly carbon capture and sequestration. And it, it, it seemed like that was one of the things that, you know, the big industrial countries continue to, to, to push. And, and I know that countries like India, I guess about 80 of the countries actually had wanted to talk about or include language to phase out uh, fossil fuels, but instead what they ended up with was some discussion that just mentioned unabated coal. So it seemed like, you know, fossil fuels still really did not uh, take as big a hit as people want. Absolutely. And that's the heart of it. You know, look at loss and damage. We've had movement on the effects of climate change and particularly on the most vulnerable in the climate justice, social justice aspect. The people least responsible for the problem are facing the biggest aspects. But the cause of the problem is not being addressed. Um, It's interesting. You're you're referring to COP26 language there. And for those uh, listeners at home who perhaps were following that, um, I, I might not agree with this man's politics and political party. He's from a different field. But Alok Sharma, uh, was the lead, um, was the president of COP26. And fair play to the man, uh, he worked his ass off to try and get a good deal. And he worked really hard trying to get fossil fuels on there. The initial language was phase out uh, coal. Um, then we had this sort of like compromise of phase out unabated coal, which is basically runaway coal. What does that mean, really? And then, to be honest, the uh, Indian and Chinese government ambushed them at the last minute. It looked like it was an agreement. And they said, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have phase out. We need phase down, which basically means reduce. This year, um, there was talk again of having phase out all fossil fuels. What we've ended up with instead is uh, language around low emissions energy, in inverted commas, like low emissions energy, which, all right, great. What, what does that mean? I mean, you could apply that to gas. You could apply that to carbon capture storage. You can apply it to nuclear. You can apply it to new renewables, which you really should be, but it's not about getting rid of fossil fuels and our addiction to it. Um, I'd like to touch upon what you said about carbon capture storage. Um, Despite how I might sound, I've I've done quite a lot of reading and a lot of study (laughs) into this background stuff. Look, uh, people are proposing this as some kind of solution. It's not proven at all. And this is a fundamental crux of that. We do have things that we can do today. Renewables are far, far cheaper to process, to make energy than any kind of fossil fuels. The technology is there. They just need to spend the money and get the political will to roll it out fast. Everything we need to get to 45% is potentially there. And I will agree with you, the IPCC, although it sounds radical perhaps to some of our listeners at home, um, actually could be seen as relatively conservative. And again, if we'd have been doing stronger things or the governments had been working more strongly 20 years ago, we would not be having this conversation and I would be sipping a margarita on a beach somewhere. 
However, this is the fact of the matter. Carbon capture storage is not demonstrated. It's not proven. And by putting our eggs in that basket, it's basically maintaining business as usual and maintaining the status quo while we pump carbon dioxide and methane into the skies with a sort of magic wand that somehow in the future we're going to be able to suck it out. There's no evidence for that at all. It's unproven. It's absolutely baby. There's nothing happening there at all. I'm probably sounding quite ticked off about that, pardon me, but there are things that we can do today. Wholesale rollout of renewable energy is feasible, possible, economically viable, technologically possible. There are many parts of the US which could uh, um, um, be very successful on renewables. Um, it's always sunny somewhere. It's always wind somewhere. Battery power needs to be built upon. There are different things that need to do. Ultimately, a big part of it too is the way our energy systems are structured. They tend to be heavily, heavily centralized. And similar to the fossil fuel sector, that industry also doesn't want to be broken up and be decentralized in that way. Unfortunately, as we all know, and people know about the climate change issues, uh, we have a systemic issue. We're all in it. We all pollute. We can't help it. It's when you turn on the lights, when you drive your car, when you get when you see your mom, when you get take a flight, when you buy something, it's all embedded. So understanding that system and looking at the foundations initially of what creates that emissions is what we need to tackle. And that is the energy system. And concurrently and related to that is a fossil fuel addiction. Now, the you know, Secretary General of the United Nations has been repeatedly warning uh, that what the world governments have been pledging in terms of emission cuts are nowhere near adequate to you know, prevent going way past 1.5 degrees, probably more two and a half uh, to, to three degrees. The, the sort of the more, you know, the, the climate justice community folks over there, on a broader perspective, are they optimistic that the world actually is going to be able to, you know, at least avoid the worst of climate collapse or at least create a world where, you know, everybody has some chance of surviving or, you know, what's this balance between hope and despair among people at this point after COP27? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and I'd love to be in a position where I speak for all people, but I think like, um, it's all to play for, Mark, you know, I think, you know, people out there who know about climate change, um, who see the impacts, you know, I'm sure, you know, where our listeners are, are you know, hearing this from, you've had impacts there, you know, you, you've tangibly seen it before your eyes, you know, and if you've got kids or people around you have kids or grandkids or whatever, you know, you must look at them and go, God, what is coming? Uh, and again, I've done a lot of reading and research in the background of this uh, and the predictions of what's going to happen by 2050 if we don't change. And if we think it's bad now, it, it is just going to be horrendous. Um, just to touch upon where we're at with the negotiations and the commitments to the Paris Agreement uh, and to 1.5. Um, countries have to submit each year what they call NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. And this is the, the government's plans for reducing emissions within their economies. Um, assuming they do what they say they will do, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt as much as we like to do that. Um, if they do that at the moment, by 2050, we're on plus 2.5 degrees warming. Now, you go, okay, 1.5, 1.6, 2, 2.5, surely it can't be so bad. 
But let's look at the IPCC 1.5 report that came out a few years ago, or two, three years ago, which actually really instigated the 1.5 target into COP26 in Glasgow. And bearing in mind, Paris had between, they said two, and we'll try for 1.5. But the IPCC 1.5 report demonstrated that the difference between a 1.5 world and a two degree world was basically millions to billions of people displaced migrants large parts of the planet uninhabitable, the collapse of the rainforest, the collapse of coral, the collapse of Antarctic ice sheets, and a hugely, hugely unstable climate. For those of us who have perhaps looked at human history, I'd really like to recommend a wonderful book by uh, Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs and Steel. It'll teach you the short history of everyone for the last 10,000 years, and there's lots of other these kind of macro history books. Um, we've been able to flourish because of an unusual period of stability in the climate over the last 10,000 years. It might not seem it, but that's what it was. It's been largely very, very different. And out of that kind of window, we developed and we left being sort of like animalistic in a way, if you look at it from foraging, um, into uh, being able to populate more areas of the planet, being able to move around more, and ultimately develop cities and towns. Now, a lot of my friends are indigenous peoples. I perhaps want to caveat what I just said previously in case it sounds a little bit unkind. Um, Nature-based, uh, land-based connections is the best things that we have. And I think that's the kind of voice that needs to be uh, front and center, the climate negotiations is often kind of ignored. But let's come back to this period. We have this period of stability and the IPCC report demonstrated um, completely that the difference between 1.5 and 2 is the difference between life and death for billions and billions of people. I think, did we just clock over 8 billion people a few weeks ago or something like that? I think I read recently. We're projected to be 12 billion by 2050 and beyond. You know, th These people are coming, they're here. We can't deny it. We know what's going to happen. The, the data, the science shows us the world we're in. It shows us what's causing the problems. It's showing us the impacts and effects, and it shows us what's going to happen. And we have the solutions. They're really, really, really simple. Tackling the fossil fuel industry, tackling big business, tackling the financial sector, uh, tackling how we do energy. And then we can look at recycling and there's also biodiversity, nature enhancements, et cetera. They're all wrapped up together. But really in the next five to 10 years, if we really tackle those things and it's easy to do, we just need to break the chain of power. And it is possible. We just need the political will. And everyone listening out there, Coming back to your question about despair and hope, do have hope um, because that's all we've got. It is possible. The window is not closed yet. We can have a 1.5 degree world. It is possible. Bang pots, vote the correct way, shop correctly, don't do, make lifestyle choices, do everything you possibly can to make this your most important thing because your children and your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren will thank you for it. Now, we only have about two minutes left. We've been talking with Frank Sheridan, Executive Secretary of, of Global Greens. I know in your summary, you also mentioned about some long overdue World Bank reform, and you, you talked there needs to be a lot more support for adaptation. But in that last 90 seconds, what's, what's, what's your last point you'd like to, to raise? All right, I'm on a 90 second countdown. Okay, I'll try not to talk too fast. Um, Let's look at the loss and damage facility. Let's look at the issues we have, you know, and the people who are naysayers or perhaps people at home are thinking, yeah, but God, it's just so much money. How are we going to change? The money exists in the world. It just needs to be taken. Let's look at the fossil fuel sector. In the past year alone, 
I mean, this is already a multi, multi-billion profit sector. You know, I, I take planes. I, I'm not like a NASA. I don't live in, in a cave with a, you know, a rock on my head. I take transport, I have a bike, but whatever, you know. This is a fossil, this is a sector which makes billions and billions of dollars. In the past year alone, it's made an extra billions, billions, billions. Windfall tax, super simple. There you have a lot of cash. Let's look at the financial sector. There are trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars sloshing around, being moved in complicated things, so complicated that even my clever, clever friends who work in the financial sector don't really fully understand it. Anyone who tells you they do is a liar. A Robin Hood tax, we call it in the UK, they tried to propose this after the financial crisis of 2010. You do a transactional tax and you can generate billions and billions. And then how that money is distributed through mechanisms like the World Bank, through the IMF, you basically create rules and regulations so these organizations cannot fund the problem. They fund the solution. It's that simple. The money is there. We just need the political alignment and the regulation to do that. And we just need to change the institution so they direct the money correctly. And Frank, if people want to find out more information about the Global Greens, you guys have a website? Well, I mean, we've, we've sort of lurched slightly into the 21st century, uh, albeit reluctantly. Yeah, of course, you can find us on all social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, if it still exists, <laughs> depending on what's happening there, and LinkedIn and elsewhere too, and YouTube, uh, Global Greens, uh, you'll see our symbol there. And of course, we've got a website, www.globalgreens.org. And you'll see what we did there with that name. Well, thank you very much, Frank Sheridan from the Global Green. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLN. 98.9 FM Schenectady and WOOALP 106.9 FM Schenectady and stream it online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary and Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support us by telling a friend and you can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. For our second segment, we hear from Santosh Nandabalan, Senior New York Organizer of Food and Water Watch. He discusses why it is important to have Governor Hochul sign the two-year moratorium on proof-of-work cryptocurrency mining, which he finally did on Tuesday. Santosh also discussed the push for the Oil Electric Buildings Act to ban gas in new buildings and the Build Public Renewables Act to have New York Power Authority build renewable energy. He also discusses the need to defeat the so-called permitting reform package by Senators Manchin and Schumer that would help fossil fuel companies. We're talking today with Santosh Nandabalan, who is a senior New York organizer for Food and Water Watch. And we've had Food and Water Watch on many times to talk about various uh, climate issues, but sometimes uh, other environmental matters. So, um, uh, Santosh, why don't you just start off maybe a little bit, what do you do for Food and Water Watch? And, and you know, why are you a climate activist? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, um, I've I've been doing climate activism for seven years now, for a while. Um, I got into activism really by accident. Uh, you know, I just happened to be at home when a canvasser knocked on my door. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about fracking. I didn't really have a concept of, of the modern day environmental movement. Um, 
But I, I I thought this was like a really cool experience. You know, I learned about fracking. I helped with the campaign and I saw that that was a job. Um, so I tried canvassing myself and that was really, really going door to door. Having those conversations got me engaged in in a political process that I didn't even really know uh, was happening around me. Um, so I, I became an, an activist because someone knocked at my door. Um, well, uh, I, I mean, I actually was a door-to-door canvasser back in 1985. Spent nice. the summer in Connecticut, door knocking as canvasser, raising money on the bottle bill. I was not very good at it. I'm a really good door knocker, but not a good fundraiser. So um, glad you have stayed with it. Yeah, it's all about confidence, but uh, I'm glad that there's like a pipeline of canvassers to now full-time activists. Um, it's, a, it's a really important skill, and it's a really important way to build a movement. So uh, what what have you been doing for Food and Water Watch? Well, we've had a lot going on, right? We just had a an election that really shaped a lot of what our work was. Um, at the state level, um, we are working on really pressuring the governor on uh, implementing and even strengthening um, our, our state's climate law, so the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Um, and this this last legislative session uh, was not the best for for climate activists. We saw really two climate bills, um, which are really the floor of what we should be passing, uh, get through to Governor Hochul's desk. So that's a bill. Um, she needs to sign to get the cumulative impact study um, here in New York for um, environmental justice communities, as well as the crypto uh, currency more uh, mining moratorium, which is a two-year uh, stop ban on mining for cryptocurrency with frac gas facilities in New York State. Um, so we've we've done a lot to build up those campaigns. We're also working on campaigns to uh, get us closer to public powers, so pass the Build Public Renewables Act, um, and very importantly, uh, when building electrification. So that's getting uh, gas hookups out of new buildings starting 2024 for small buildings, 2027 for buildings uh, seven stories or higher, um, and moving them to renewable energy, to uh, energy efficiency measures, especially heat pumps. Um, those are really strong legislative measures we need to get get to Governor Hochul and have her sign um, if we're going to win, basically uphold uh, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. Uh, So there's been a lot of yelling at politicians, a lot of lobbying, a lot of getting constituents uh, engaged, um, pressuring their own elected officials uh, to then go to the governor to, to get these initiatives done. So we've done that at the state level. We've well, done... if I could jump in here just a second on on the cumulative impact bill, which is really important. The idea is, say, you're going to, you know, want to get a permit to do a factory or some type of power plant, uh, particularly in a low income community, community of color. You, if the bill is signed into the law by the the governor, not only would you look at the emissions from this particular plant, but you would look at all the other emissions that's already coming about. Because, you know, adding pollution into a neighbor that's already polluted is a really bad idea, but that tends to be what happens. But the question I had on the the cryptocurrency, I believe it's called, you know, it's called proof of work. We use all these computers to solve mathematical equations, particularly to get Bitcoin. But the cryptocurrency, I guess one of the big 
brokers just completely collapsed and Bitcoin value has gone down more than 50% since uh, November. Is there a much future for the cryptocurrency and how is that impacting upon the issue? And, and why are you guys so concerned about cryptocurrency? Yeah, I mean, look, the viability of cryptocurrency on its own is is that comes into question. And, and that, but what you're citing, the recent news, I, I don't really know if, if cryptocurrency is a, a real thing we should be investing in in the future. But we certainly shouldn't be investing in it in a way that uh, burns more gas and destroys our environment. Uh, we are incredibly concerned right now. We are there's there was a recent approval for permits of the Forrester plant. Um, denial of permits for the Greenwich plant. So these are power plants that run solely to, to mine cryptocurrency. It's not for electricity. It's not for heat for homes. Um, and we're burning gas for, for, for a fake, for essentially a, a digital currency that it's, we don't really know what impact it's going to have long-term. Uh, for us, it's, it's truly an environmental issue. Um, we simply cannot build out more fossil fuel infrastructure. We can't do it under this guise either. Um, it's really that point in blank for us that this has been kind of the case for all fossil fuel plants. Uh, you know, we've fought the Dance Camera plant, the Astoria, the Gowanus plant recently. Those are big victories. We simply can't afford any more fossil fuel infrastructure. And I think um, this bill, which is now sitting on Governor Hopel's desk, uh, needs to get signed immediately um, to make sure that we can study the impacts that we have on that mining for cryptocurrency has. And then if, if they're not good, we put an end to it. Um, so that's really what's on the table now. And what we, we are worried that um, if it doesn't happen sooner than later, we're going to get to a point of no return. Now, I need one of the additional problems, like some of these plants, the, the amount of carbon emissions that are now attributable to these proof of work cryptocurrency mining operations is greater than like countries like New Zealand and, Arte and Argentina. And, and, and what has been happening is that because they use some electricity because they're running thousands and thousands of computers in order to, you know, solve the mathematical equation, which creates Bitcoin faster than anybody else. So they can get the tens of thousands of dollars from the Bitcoin. Uh, they've actually been beginning to look at, well, you know, it'd be cheaper if we just bought off some of these old power plants that were shut down usually because they were too polluting and run them ourselves directly. And that way we reduce our utility bill. And I guess that's one of the reasons why, you know, cryptocurrency has been become so controversial. What's holding up, you know, Governor Hochul? I saw before the primary that I'm sorry, before the, I think it was before, but before the general election, that climate was the second most important issue for among Democrats, or actually tied with abortion. Yep. And in the general election, the exit polls, at least on election night, Susan R. Better Spectrum One said that climate was the number two issue overall for all voters, not just Democrats. So what's the delay with the good governor? Yeah, there's there's no denying climate is on the mind of many voters. The Bond Act, which was on the ballot, outperformed Hochul by over 15 points, which is just a testament to people who just want clean air, clean water, and a livable, livable planet. Um, your your guess is as good as mine. She should have signed this already. We have been outside of her office recently. We we did a press conference. Um, not too long ago, really calling on her, you know, the election is over. There's no reason now for her not to sign this bill. Um, I mean, I expect her imminently to do it, but I hope that's not wishful thinking. You know, there there has been talk, there are ties to the crypto industry with the administration. The, you know, there's 
it's all up in the air. So she really needs to to put our doubts at ease and, and sign this thing um, sooner rather than later. Um, and if, if she's smart, she'll do it today or tomorrow. I, I worked a lot actually with Food and Water Watch on a far more progressive uh, climate bill than what became the CLCPA, uh, the New York Off Fossil Fuels Act, which was a little bit more focused both on immediately shutting down and stopping all new fossil fuel plants, uh, but also had a much quicker timeline and moving to 100% clean renewable energy. And I was just reading an article, I believe in New York uh, Focus, and they were making the point that, you know, despite, you know, some medium-sized goals to build out renewable energy, the reality is, is that no, not much new utility-scale renewable energy has come online since uh, the law has been been passed, and the reality is that, you know, since Governor Pataki in 2002 set up you know, some fairly ambitious goals, especially for a Republican, on how to move renewable energy, you know, New York still's only added, you know, five percent. You know, how do we actually get these guys to build renewable energy, not talk about renewable energy? Yeah, that's a really important point. I think we're we're maybe just a little bit above 5% combined between solar and wind now, um, which has not really changed much in the last five years. Uh, and, and the goals have only gotten more stringent uh, since the passage of the 2019 climate law. Um, this, this is a great segue. I mean, I think we're at a point really, the private industry has failed us on transitioning to renewable energy. Corporate utilities have been jacking up rates to build out pipeline projects, to, to inundate communities that are heavily hit by air pollution and by climate change with more fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, I think the fact is we can't keep on relying on these corporate utilities the way we do, and we need the state to step up. And so there's been a push really over the past now two years um, to, to pass a very important bill to build Public Renewables Act uh, which would unleash NIPA. So this is the New York Power Authority. It's limited on how much renewable pro renewable siting it can do, how much renewable energy it can, can come out of it. If we unleash the New York Power Authority, this is an incredible resource New York State has. Uh, we can get to 75% renewable energy by 2030 um, and make the, the CLCPA goals incredibly achievable. Um, right now, uh, we, we were able to pass it through the, the Senate last session. Um, a big obstacle for the climate movement, not just on this, but a lot of climate bills, has been our Assembly Speaker, Carl Hasty. But we have really key leaders, um, you know, Sarah Hanna Shrestha, who ran in Kingston, New Paltz, that Assembly District. She ran really strongly on this Build Public Renewables Act, won that primary, won that general election. We're going to have more leaders like her push that. But if we're going to move from that 5 or 6% mark up to a significant amount more, we need to get that bill passed. And this is not exactly a radical proposal because, in fact, Governor Cuomo four years ago had proposed uh, that the New York Power Authority begin developing renewable energy. But unfortunately, uh, the private solar and wind companies convinced the legislature to block what Cuomo had proposed because they wanted to, um, you know, maintain um, their their profits. So how how do we convince uh, Speaker Hasty, who, you know, I, I've only been doing this 50 years. I don't know how many more years I got. 
But in the 50 years that I've been actively involved in the New York State Legislature, he is by far the worst speaker or head of the New York State Assembly on environmental issues. It used to be could always count on the um, speaker of the assembly to be the environmentalists among the, the, you know, the gang of three that made all the decisions. And that's not the case with uh, Carl Hasty. And then uh, Steve Inglebright, longtime chair of the environmental committee in the assembly. Yeah, I like to see him a little bit stronger, but pretty good guy. Unfortunately, it looks like he may have lost his election. And the Senate chair of the environmental committee, uh, he decided not to run for re-election to the Senate after being trounced in a race for uh, district attorney down in Nassau County. So how, how do we change the leadership of the New York State Assembly and Senate on environmental issues? Well, you've, you brought up like kind of the local politics here. No more Engelbright, no more Kaminsky. We'll see kind of what happens with those assignments as we go forward. Look, it's this is this is really the power of community organizing. Hasty has two constituencies, right? So he has the voters in his district that vote him into office, but then he he is the assembly speaker, so he has his rank and file assembly members um, who functionally can move him. Um, and what we saw last year is we had we had leaders that weren't stepping up to the plate. So I mentioned Sarah Hanna, her predecessor, uh, who's the current incumbent about to leave in a month, Kevin Cahill, uh, was not, was not pushing this bill, was not advocating. And and that was kind of that kind of old guard, you know, status quo type leadership um, needs to go. So we have been really focusing on this primaries to make that an issue um, so in races where we won him, like Sarah Hanna, great. We're going to have now someone that can organize in the ranks with us uh, inside Albany to make sure that we can build enough pressure among rank and file assembly members to then move Carl Hasty to do the right thing. Um, and then those that that won but had close races or or saw this these these races happening, they they've got to pay attention and, and see this is where the wind's blowing and how the tides are turning. Um, no pun intended there, but um, they need to listen to constituents and then go go to Hasty and make sure that that he acts on this. It's an incredibly popular bill. It's got it got a ton of traction. It passed through the Senate. Uh, Governor Hochul has has suggested she's open to to getting this done. Um, so we really need Speaker Hasty to step up, and the way to do it is kind of through this rank and file organizing of of his assembly members. I'll just mention for local people, you know, a, a similar bill is to try to get uh, New York State to agree to uh, convert both the state capital and the Empire State Plaza to 100% renewable energy. You know, we, we fought four or five years ago to defeat Governor proposal to put some more frack gas turbines into the Sheridan Hollow neighborhood. That neighborhood has been basically been running a steam plant for more than a century in order to power the capital and now the Empire State Plaza. And, you know, after a century of pollution, they should get, you know, a much um, cleaner operation. But I know Food and Water Watch also, you know, engages in uh, national advocacy. It's a national, you know, organization. And I kind of remember seeing you on Facebook or something being let out in handcuffs or something at Senator Schumer's office? What, 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 what do we need Senator Schumer to get better on? <laughs> uh, a lot. You know, he was really talking the talk. Uh, 
not too long ago on on climate. You know, he went, he biked with us during the climate can't wait week. He's, he stood against fossil fuel power plants, but recently, um, as, as maybe some listeners know, uh, Senators Schumer and Senators Manchin uh, kind of came up with a backroom deal. It's been colloquially kind of coined the dirty deal or the dirty pipeline deal, um, which would fast track a ton of fossil fuel projects. I think it's something like 19 of them, 19 or 20, including the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would go through West Virginia and Virginia. Um, It would also gut environmental review processes, making sure that, you know, there's less community input, input um, and less information being sent out um, around new fossil fuel projects that are being proposed. So it, it was billed as some kind of, um, I think they, they, they called it like permitting reform, um, but really it was, it was a handout written by the American Petroleum Institute, given to Manchin, and then some negotiation happened between Senators Manchin and Schumer um, they claim that this is something they needed to do to get the Inflation Reduction Act passed. That has already passed. It's a done deal. President Biden has signed it. We don't need to give any handouts to the fossil fuel industry. So a, a lot of us, we had like close to 100 or so folks directly after we got this news really quickly mobilized outside of Senator Schumer's New York City office. About a dozen of us got inside, you know, made some noise, occupied the space there. Um, and yeah, we participated in civil disobedience to say we, we can't fast track fossil fuel projects. We can't gut our environmental review processes, can't throw black and brown communities under the bus. All this fossil fuel infrastructure has got to go. And that is, is still creeping up. So we were able to stop it. There was an initial push to get this done, passed in some what what's must pass budget legislation. Um that was stopped uh, September 30th, but there is now kind of like a zombie. The stuff is coming up again. Um, Manchin still wants to get this through. Um, he's going again to try to, to stick it to some kind of must-pass legislation before the end of the year. Um, and, and we're simply going to have to organize and make sure that, that our political leaders step up on this. Well, I, I believe Senator Manchin has quite a bit invested in, in coal himself. Uh, and there's also there's a pipeline he's been trying to promote against Mountain Valley down in his 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 right. state. But you know one of the things I've been hearing a lot of the uh, I don't know Democratic liberals say, well yeah yeah we don't really want the permit in to help fossil fuels. What we really need the permit in for is we gotta speed up the transmission lines because we're gonna build all this new renewable energy. We gotta get it you know to New York City and the other big electric users and. Oh, everybody opposes us when we want to build new transmission lines. So how how do you buy this concept? You know, oh, this permanent reform really is about transmission lines. I mean, if it was about transmission lines, they wouldn't be pushing for fossil fuel infrastructure. It's kind of like a sleight of hand trick, right? You say one thing and you do another. Um, that, that's what politicians' middle name is, isn't it? Sleight of hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Joe Manchin is a is a real class act, uh, and hopefully. You know, we can get our senator in, in Georgia, Raphael Warnock, elected so that we can kind of negate that vote with a 51st Democrat. Um, but but this is, yeah, look, this is a, a senator who's very tied to what, as you mentioned, the coal industry, takes a ton of fossil fuel money, um, is in cahoots with the American Petroleum Institute. They're 
this is a really weak greenwashing attempt, but they're going to do what they can to somehow squeeze in more pipeline infrastructure. You know, this is kind of the game of the fossil fuel industry is delay, you know, this transition as long as you can keep out building out investments and then reek it in when you raise rates through utilities. Um, so, you know, there is really no, it, it is a fossil fuel permitting bill. It is to make sure we can expand more fossil fuel infrastructure in the country. And we simply have to say no to that. Now, uh, you know, even with the Democrats holding on to the Senate, uh, you know, even before the only thing they could do was budget reconciliation, which only required 50 votes plus the vice president. Um, there's been a big push over the last year and a half to actually get Governor, um, Governor, President Biden to issues a series of executive orders. People can look at uh, climatepresident.org. Uh, is there a renewed pitch? Um, now it's clear that Congress is probably even more gridlocked than it was, you know, before the election. Yeah, I think really now more than ever, especially looking to 2024, we need Biden to step up in the plate. The ask is still the same here. He can declare a climate emergency today and really get a lot of the stuff done that we need to get done. So that's making sure we're not exporting more fossil fuels making sure we're ending out the build out of fossil fuel projects throughout the country um, and, and banning fracking nationwide. That can happen with the stroke of his pen. Um, and we need to continue to renew that call and continue to build that pressure. Um, not only, you know, for our planet, yes, for our health, yes. Um, but we're seeing this time and time again, and you mentioned this earlier in the interview, climate is a huge issue for voters. And if we're going to take back power to an extent that we need to in 2024, we need to take this block seriously and make sure that they're heard and make sure that they're coming out to vote. Now I'm at the age where almost everybody's beginning to look a whole lot younger than me. So I may overestimate your age, but you know, most voters under the age of uh, 30, 35, overwhelmingly by 22 percentage points, you know, win for the Democrats. It's the only reason the Democrats even survived this election cycle. What do, what do young people want these days in terms of climate? I think maybe I'm I'm on the edge there, Mark. I'm okay. 31. Um, but but I you know I, I think really really clearly the 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 youth movement, you know, the the the, the rise of sunrise, the, the more youth climate leaders coming in, not only in New York State but everywhere else. It's never been more clear that this is the direction the Democratic Party has to go, that we really need to prioritize um, global warming, prioritize taking down the fossil fuel industry, um, not, not only as a, a political thing, but this is an existential point. This is our futures we're talking about. I think that's point blank. That needs to resonate. And at, to some extent, it has. You've seen the rise of kind of an emergent leftist movement among the youth. You know, a lot of a lot of this stemmed from Bernie's initial presidential run in 2016. But it's it's only grown and, and that is the direction that hopefully if we're going to get power and save the planet, um, that is the direction the Democratic Party needs to go. So we only have about two minutes left. We've been talking with uh, Santosh Nandavan. Um, you know, the Food and Water Watch used to bring thousands of people during the whole fight about fracking to the state capitol, annual state of the state address. Guys are infamous, famous for, you know, bird dogging the governor everywhere that 
he or she goes. Well, what do you have in store for us in the uh, coming year that we should be looking out for, even before then? Yeah, I mean, look, let's make sure, you know, let's turn our eyes to Georgia and the immediate future, right? So before the December 6th runoff, we have a chance to phone bank or write letters for that. If we can get a 51st Democratic senator, you know, we're, we're talking about Manchin's dirty deal. We can totally negate his vote. After that, you know, really turn our eyes back to New York. Um, two more important bills. I'm, I'm hopeful that Governor Hochul any day now will sign this cryptocurrency moratorium into law. Um, and that that will be done this year. Uh, coming up next year, we're going to put a real emphasis, have a real push on building electrification. So getting the All-Electric Buildings Act into Governor Hochul's executive budget is the real first step to make sure this gets done. Um, and then also make sure that that she prioritizes the Build Public Renewables Act. Um, so that's that's an upcoming Governor Hochul moment. Um, she normally gives a, a state of the state address in the beginning of January where she'll lay out our priorities, what's going in our budget. We want to make sure those things are in there. Um, and expect to see us. We're going to continue to do kind of the, the, the classic bird dogging and rallying we've always done. But we'll be, you know, doing these same kind of bus trips to Albany, doing big actions, lobbying, in particular around the All Electric Buildings Act. Um, that's something New York really should have done this year. Uh, we need to get it done. Um, really quickly, make sure that uh, we move our buildings off fossil fuels immediately. It is a huge part of our carbon footprint, something like close to a third, counts for a third of what we we, we get in carbon and methane emissions. And I, I know that one of your colleagues, Alice Beecham, uh, has a letter to the editor or even an op-ed in the Times Union earlier this week, if people want to check that out. Santash, get facebook page web page if you want more information but you can check out the food and water watch new york facebook page there are updates constantly on actions uh the best place to if you're trying to get plugged in for the next event next phone bank next canvas um is go to our our mobilize page i think it's mobilize.us slash food and water fww that concludes our thanksgiving special on climate you can see the many segments on climate um that Hudson Mohawk Magazine has done by going to mediasanctuary.org and typing climate into the search field on the top right corner. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Mark Dunley. The program covers stories of social and environmental justice. If you value independent media, please consider a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website. We appreciate you listening. 